Welcome to Honest Money. We have a special three-part series talking with authors Stephen Boyke Sidley and Simon Dingle on their new book, Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. In today's episode, Warren Ingram speaks to Stephen and Simon about the foundations of understanding crypto, the blockchain system, what decentralization means, how banking will be affected, and more. Welcome to a really special episode of Honest Money. It's the first time I think we've got three people on, on a show. Uh, the, the first time we're talking uh, exclusively about cryptos, uh, and, and, I, and I'm not just about cryptos before you kill me, but, but a topic I've avoided for probably five years because of all the hatred from, uh, from anybody in the world of, of cryptos, and, and we'll get to the, the DeFi now, but uh, because of the, the kind of emotiveness around this topic, and I'm, I'm so glad it's something that, that, that you guys have addressed. So, so I just want to welcome the, the, uh, my two guests, and, and, and I'm going to say we're talking about a book, but it's way more than a book. Uh, and, and I want to congratulate you both on the book. I think it's a, a, a brilliant effort uh, to kind of take something that is so complicated, so emotive, uh, and make it simple so that uh, someone like me, I was going to say an older guy like me, but that might be disrespectful to, to some of the older people around us, but an older guy like me can understand this, um, walk away not feeling like I'm clueless, and actually also not feel like an expert, and then know that the, the, the trend is... Uh, is one of learning. I think we're, we're, we're in the beginning of evolution, I, I, would, I would hazard a guess. So, so uh, Simon, 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 Simon Dingle, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Stephen Boyke Sidley, thanks so much. It's very, very nice to, to, to meet you both. So the book, Bitcoin, Bitcoin? Yes. Beyond? Beyond Bitcoin. Beyond Bitcoin? Yeah. Uh, but but I, need, I need to expand it because what we're talking about here is not just uh, yeah, Bitcoin, right? And it's not just about beyond Bitcoin. We're talking about decentralized finance. Yes. Uh, and, and you're telling us, and it's, it's a little bit cheeky, I think, but it's probably meant to be the end of banks. So, so I think uh, if, if that's the, the premise of, of what we're talking about, uh, and, and just to be clear, beyond Bitcoin's the title, I'm not messing it up. I, would, I just want to make sound a bit nervous. Uh, so uh, let, let's just start with, with a bit of jargon to get out the way. What, is, what are we talking about when we talk about Bitcoin? Because I think there is kind of layers we've got to build here to talk about this whole system, right? So, yeah. so what is Bitcoin? So I think the simplest uh, way of explaining it to me is just to say that Bitcoin is money for the internet. Um, but it's also something that was predicted. You know, we had people like Milton Friedman, um, but also computer scientists, information scientists, people who were at the forefront of what was happening with the internet and connectivity who kind of saw this as an inevitability, you know. The internet had an impact on our social networks. It had an impact on our business communications. Eventually, it was going to have an impact on the financial system. Uh, it was just a question of when. Uh, and the one thing that was missing was, if you will, an economy for the internet. The internet didn't have a bespoke economy. It was using old world money technology like credit cards, which is something that was invented in the 1950s, um, to get payments happening online. But there was no protocol for payments or for money on the internet. Um, there were a few attempts at it in the 90s, but the first really formidable foray into that territory was Bitcoin. That introduced a protocol that's fundamental to the internet that unlocks money on the internet. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's an inevitability, something that was predicted, and now a fundamental part of the internet itself. And, and there's a bit of color to, to, to that history as well, because ever since about the 
mid-70s when, when uh, PCs arrived on the scene, a bunch of very clever researchers had tried to wrestle with the problem of how to represent money um, digitally, and then when the internet arrived, how to transmit it digitally. And these were very smart people, and there were a whole slew of problems in, that they faced in making it trustworthy, in making it that you couldn't double-spend your money, in making it permissionless, etc., etc. And one single very beautiful nine-page paper written by a pseudonymous programmer by the name of Satoshi, everybody knows about, wrote this paper in 2009, which heralded the birth of it. He solved every single one of those problems in a single paper. People sort of compare this to a great work of art. But something else happened which is absolutely critical to why we started to write the book. In about 2014, which is five years after Bitcoin had been around and was already operating and was already in a, 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 a digital economy, there was a skinny teenager by the name of Vitalik Buterin. He was 19 years old. And he had another idea. So he built a Bitcoin-like set of architectural technology plumbing, but he added a layer on the top. And the layer on the top he added was a programming language, just like any other programming language, like C++ or Python or Java. A programming language that was easily comprehensible to anybody who understood how to program. And he said, okay, now I've got this blockchain thingy that looks like Bitcoin, and I have this extra layer on the top, and I present this here to you, the world, to dream up any application you may want to dream up. So any kid from a garage who knew how to program up to a huge software company could now take this blockchain and build anything they could dream of. And the first targets on the backs of the traditional world that these people were attacked were the global financial institutions. And so the book is called Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. It is only a metaphorical statement, the end of banks. It means that... Banks, as we know them, will have to change. So, okay. So, so let, let, let's go back a, a step now because we're, we're, we're forecasting the change of banks. But, but, I mean, the end of banks sounds much better. I'll pick up the book then. I'm not going to see the change of banks. Exactly. So, I, I get it. But, but we've got this thing now, Bitcoin, and we understand that there is a language on top of it. But, but then, all of a sudden, uh, we, we realize that's not good enough. We, we also need to add something else, which is which you cover in the book, smart contracts. Yes. So, so I would l I'd love to just explain that to our audience as well, because that's that's kind of key in this decentralized finance world, right? You you can't do the one without the other. You need something else as well for the whole ecosystem to work. Okay. So let me quickly demystify the word smart contract, which is used uh, within this community. It is simply a computer program. Okay, so when they were provided with a computer program to write, the expectation and the reality of it was that people wrote small programs to do various financial things. Those were called smart contracts. But there are nothing more or less in a computer program which is highly secure. So let's take it to a step, though, because I want to bring back to contract. I'm sitting here and thinking to myself, it takes months for me to sell my house. Mm. So, And you've mentioned in the book there are estate agents... Uh, you know, there are lawyers in here. Uh, there's this huge free chain of banks and transactions and everything. And, and so when I hear the phrase smart contract and I hear, well, attach it to, to this world, I'm thinking, is it not really uh, something else? Where actually everything that I need to do to sell my house to you, you know, it's a beautiful house, you should really buy it. Uh, if that's not all in, in, in one thing, one agreement, and everything's done, we don't, we, we're not waiting for a lawyer to, to store the money in his trust account and then, uh, the deeds office to do something. You, you and I can do this in a system. 
That's correct. So I'm, I'm going to let ask Simon to give his own view on this, but the smart contract, which is a computer program, is the encapsulation of a set of rules, which is what a contract is. So the title deed for your house is a sort of a contract. The thing that you sign to open up a deposit account that tells you that you will get paid a certain rate of return is a contract. Just about every commercial engagement between you and another individual or you and an institution is governed by a contract sitting in the middle. That contract sitting in the middle, whether it's been drawn up by lawyers, and most of them have been at some stage, is mediated and guaranteed by guarantors and trustees for whom you pay to guarantee that the contract is executed correctly. If you remove all those people and replace that contract with a piece of code on this blockchain, it's called the Ethereum blockchain, then you have presented a brand new innovation to the world of contracting where there are no people, there is just a guaranteed piece of algorithmic technology sitting in the middle. Uh, Simon, maybe you have a, a different view of this. Well, I think one thing to add that's quite interesting is that in traditional legal contracts, your big problem is ambiguity. Yeah. And a lot of resources are expended on lawyers arguing over what the language actually means. It's like, well, it says this in the contract, but it can mean different things. The interesting thing about smart contracts is they're written in computer code, they're written in math. So there's only one way they can be executed, right? There's no arguing over ambiguity. The contract is going to execute this rule the way it's been written. So you have to make sure that you get it right up front because there's only one way it's going to be executed. And if you create a potential to exploit the contract, a hacker or somebody else could come in, and this has happened on multiple occasions, and they could exploit your contract. So the one thing it forces us is to be far clearer in our intentions than we used to be with legal contracts in the old world. The other thing that's interesting and novel about it is that by default, anything that's successful on the internet is decentralized and generally open source, right? So 90% of our servers run on Linux because it's decentralized and open. The protocol that powers email, IMAP, is, is an open standard. TCP, IP, all of the building blocks of the internet are not proprietary technologies. They're open and accessible and extensible. And the same is true in smart contracts. So another uh, uh, interesting term is this concept of, of money Lego. Right, where you've got all of these smart contracts that have been written on Ethereum, but they can be um, they can be called by other contracts. So you can call a function from a contract and include it in your own, and and hence this idea of Lego. I can come and I can kind of build a construct of you know different pieces of different smart contracts because somebody else has solved the problem. I don't have to go and and redo it myself, which is a little bit like what happens in in the old world where lawyers copy and paste clauses from each other. I think most contracts are. Or, or kind of like Frankenstein's monster, you know, they, yeah. they, they, they copied and pasted together. But but yeah, it's quite literally composable. So you're calling bits of the contract. Oh, we need a piece that solves this problem. Let's take that piece of that contract, this piece of that contract, and you can very rapidly put together a framework or a system that'll execute in a particular way and is composed of all of these functions from all over the place. So so we're we're not in the business, especially on this show, of kind of developing a whole lot of value judgments about a tool, right? Because because what we're talking about here in a way is a tool. And and the, a lot of the critique around around this space is, yeah, but they're bad people that you know use the non and the anonymous side of this to to their ends and, and it's very polarized. I mean you mentioned that about the good people and the bad people and 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 from from my perspective, I think, you know, a car can be a useful thing or it can be a, a killing machine. Exactly. Like, don't blame the car. So I don't want to talk about gun control here. That's a whole other ballgame. In this instance, the one thing that sort of kind of alerts, alerts my kind of alarm bells is, uh, are we relying on another 19-year-old techie 
to determine how I sell my house and that I actually get paid. Is that, is that what you're telling me? Okay, so, so I want to break that, in, that, that question into two answers. The first one is Simon mentioned the word decentralization, which is so absolutely core, and is this piece of jargon, and I want to pull that apart and demystify what it means. Blockchain is a decentralized technology. What does that mean? In the case of the traditional world in which we live, when we deal with, for instance, a bank, you're dealing with a central organization who purports to act on your behalf and most often does, but not always. If you have to complain, you complain to your bank. If you uh, need a new service done or if you want to look at your funds, you go to your bank. They are centralized and they extract a fee for that centralization for handling that service. The same as the stock exchange, the central thing. What decentralization means is there are thousands of anonymous computers doing exactly the same thing, which means it is unhackable. And the example that I give in the book, if you'll give me just a second, desert island, 100 families on a desert island, each family, they don't really know each other, the families has a palm tree and the palm tree supplies them with oil and coconuts. And they have a meeting once a month and discuss issues uh, that are important to the island. One day a storm comes through and knocks down one of those palm trees and the Zog family is now without food. And they go next door to the Zik family and they say, listen, I've lost my coconut there. Can you lend me, can you help me? Guy says, well, I had a good harvest this year, so I'll lend you a couple of coconuts, but you've got to pay me back next year. Now that transaction happens within earshot of the other hundred families. Year goes by, guy gets his palm tree back and his neighbor, Mr. Zig, comes and says, pay up, you owe me some coconuts. And the guy says, I don't owe you anything. I don't know what you're talking about. At that point, a meeting can be called and these 100 anonymous families can be asked the question, did anybody here, this guy, promise to pay back coconuts? And uh, all the hands go up. That is what decentralization means, that there is no central authority that can act it is an anonymous agreement between two people. So paradoxically, the whole of the blockchain ecosystem is based on the premise that one should trust no one. When you're dealing with a centralized authority, there can be bad people inside, there can be bad actors, people can be bribed, technology can go wrong. When you have thousands of anonymous people doing the same thing, or anonymous machines in this case, or anonymous programs, or anonymous smart pr contracts who are identical, it's very hard to game the system. Which brings you to your question about the teenager who wrote the program that you're relying on. It is true that at the birth of this industry, which is uh, 2017, the first DeFi thing started to happen, is there were hacks. The bugs by their nature have software in. And because people were, because the software was vulnerable in some cases and there were bad people out there and there was always bad people out there, people went in and stole money. But like all other technologies, this stuff begins to harden over time and mature. And you will find now, I'll give you the most obvious example, Bitcoin has never been hacked. Ethereum has never been hacked. Some of the DeFi projects, which I hope we'll get into later in the podcast, have been hacked, realized where the exploit of vulnerability was, lost some money, and closed those lids. In addition to that, there is this growing police force of a band of also 18-year-old youngsters, perhaps a little bit older, called white hat hackers. And those guys are good guys who run around looking for bugs and exploits and vulnerabilities and trapdoors and report them to the organization so they can keep the bad guys out. So if the DeFi project has been written by an 18-year-old or a bunch of 18-year-olds and is a couple of years old and has billions and billions of dollars in it, the chances at this stage of maturity, and it's only a couple of years, you're in good shape. Okay. 
So, uh, so I don't need to rely on someone that's got out of bed uh, after too many Red Bulls, to put some code together, and now, now that's how my house is going to be sold or not. That's great. We're talking about a self-regulating yes. uh, wider well, system. Just to add to what Stephen was saying, um, and, and perhaps just to say, because you, you, you said you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum haven't been hacked, but DeFi projects have, just to, to, to kind of more clearly define what happened there. Those were things on, on the, the perimeter of the network that were hacked a little bit like if I steal your username and password for your internet banking and I log into your bank account and send myself some money, I've hacked your account. I haven't hacked the bank itself. The bank itself works fine. <laughs> I've just compromised you as a human being. Yeah. Um, so that's what we've seen happening in the blockchain space. The blockchains themselves haven't been hacked, but people you know, have made mistakes that have been exploited. But just to get to that point of trust, it's not to say that um, you know, trust has been solved in the system or you can trust the network itself. Trust doesn't enter into it. So we refer to a blockchain like Bitcoin as being trustless. And the notion that Bitcoiners talk about is you don't need to trust because you can verify. You can go and look at the code. It's cryptography. It's math. You can, you know, anybody who knows how to can go and interrogate it, read the entire contract, you know, see exactly what it's going to be doing, etc. So it's, trust doesn't even enter, enter, enter into it. It's like you interrogate the, the, the code, the math. This is how it's going to happen, you know. It's like I know the equation for gravity. I don't have to trust that when I throw a shot, but it's going to fall to earth at a certain speed. It's going to fall to earth at a certain speed every time because this is the math. So, so we're in a system that's designed on the premise that uh, assume everyone's going to, to want to act badly and we create something that, that prevents that. From the beginning, from the ground up, that's right. you, you don't need to, to rely on someone's good intent the system will, will eliminate that as much as... It's a lovely yes. way to put it. You do not have to rely on human good in intent for blockchain ecosystems like Bitcoin and Ethereum to work. You can even rely on bad intent. It'll still work well. But I do think there's a challenge there because not everybody is going to learn how to interrogate the code themselves. No. And no, most people don't care and shouldn't have to care. Yeah. You know? And so I think that really speaks to, to, to part of what we're saying in the book is it's the end of banking as we know it. It's the end of banks as we know them. But those trust relationships, because we're human beings and because no man is an island, you know, somebody is still going to have to help most people with this stuff. Yes, anybody can interrogate the code and can make sure that the system is robust and will work, etc. And a lot of people will. So I like looking after my own keys. I love running the Bitcoin software on a node myself that I access for my transactions. Um, and I'm able to do that. Cool. But I don't expect everybody in the world to go and learn how to do that, and they shouldn't have to. So we'll still need intermediaries that are going to help people do this. And I, I think it's a, um, I think there are a lot of sort of very extreme um, factions within blockchain that expect banks to go away entirely and everybody to start doing them themselves. That's obviously not going to happen. No, I mean, it sounds like, you know, the, the early days of the Wild West, you know, we had to kind of travel across the whole country, do everything yourself, build everything yourself and, and be completely self-reliant. And actually what happened was they created communities yes. for, of specialists and people that could rely on other specialists and then something got built. Yeah. And it sounds yeah. to me, as you're talking, and, and as I was reading your book thinking, this is what's happening here. It's not Wild West in a bad way. This is a new unexplored, I mean, I don't know what to call it. If, if we call it an ecosystem. Yes. Uh, and and it's, going to, it's going to have some things fall down, uh, but that doesn't mean that everything falls down and it doesn't mean the whole thing's bad. Yeah. Uh, um, and I always feel like whatever we do today builds um, to solve the problems of the past, which is great. Uh, but, but the solutions themselves will create new problems for the future. 
Yes. Uh, and, and so that'll be interesting to see. Um, and then I think you, you, you kind of touch on the future quite a bit in the book, and I'm going to get there, so I'm going to stop. I, I don't want you to jump down that curve now, otherwise I'm going to run out of questions for you. But, but I, I feel like I, w- I want to do one thing, which is, uh, and maybe to wrap up this first segment, is uh, we talk about decentralized finance. So what is it? Okay, so to put it in its most simple terms, decentralized finance is firstly a set of services with which we are currently familiar. Those are the services that are provided to us by financial institutions, banks, exchanges, derivatives exchanges, insurance companies. Those sets of services we understand. It is the reimagining and rewiring and rebuilding of those exact same services, only faster, better, cheaper, and more trustworthy, those things particularly. So it is the representation of something that we understand in a much better way. I'll give you a simple example of this. The core function of a bank is to lend and borrow. They do other things. They facilitate payments between people. They have a broker there. You can buy stocks. They sell you insurance. They can calculate risk. Their core function since the Medici's in the 1100s has been lending and borrowing. They lend out at certain amounts. They borrow at a certain amount. The gap in between gives them their profit. Most of the first DeFi initiatives, and they have names like Compound and AAVA and various others, did exactly the same thing. They lend and borrow. They, they take money from you and give you an interest rate, and they lend out to other people and get an interest rate. The difference in return for the person who puts the money in is an order of magnitude today from tra- traditional finance. A couple of weeks ago, I opened an account at a particular site. I put some money in there. And I'm getting 13%. Okay, this is, this, is, this is a global site. Remember, these things are not nation-based. 13%, there is zero risk because it's not exposed to the price volatility of Bitcoin Ethereum. It's based on stable coins, and perhaps we'll talk about that. I have zero risk on that 13%, and I can pull it out whenever I want. If you're an American or a Brit earning less than 1% on your current account, that is startling, eye-watering returns. It's available now. The only reason why everybody is not doing that, as, as, as Simon says, it is tr- tricky, scary, new territory. It's new. People are scared of it. They want somebody to do it for them. So this is where we make the very important caveat, right? Because yeah. <laughs> firstly, I don't know that I agree that it's zero risk. Zero risk is a you could be, red you flag could, to me. You could be liquidated depending on your collateral position, etc. Et but, but I think the important thing to mention is that we're not giving financial advice here. So Stephen's getting 13%. I know he is. I've seen it. It's, it. Nobody at home should do this, right? All right. We're, this is not financial advice. Not financial advice. Thank you. Yeah, this is okay. entertainment. We're so, just talking about it because it's fun. Let me finish my little wrap. So it's, 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 it's the representation of services we understand that are cheaper, better, faster, more trustworthy. It is also a set of services that traditional finance cannot offer. And I'll give you the most obvious and sexy example of all of these. There is a programmer from Stellenbosch by the name of Andre Cronier, a South African, who saw what was going on in these DeFi projects, particularly the Lenbrella projects that were providing yields, and he saw that this project gave a very nice percentage for three weeks and then some other project, and then their, their returns dropped and some other project gave a better percentage. He wrote a little piece of code at the top that sniffed the horizon for all these DeFi projects to see which project was giving the best return at any given moment, continuous real-time scanning, and pulled your money out and dropped your money in and pulled your money out and dropped your money in. The returns that he got from that was spectacular. The name of the project is called Why Earn? 
Andre Cronier is second only to Satoshi and Vitaly Paterin, probably the biggest god in the world of DeFi. He's completely unknown in South Africa. That genre of DeFi is called yield farming, where you go and farm the landscape to see where you get the best yields in real time. You cannot do this in traditional finance. You can't take your money out of your FNB and put it into APSA because they're giving a slightly better rate. It's too much of a pain in the neck. So it's a set, there's a whole set of these projects which are non-replicable and are unprecedented in traditional finance. I think we're going we're gonna to wrap there for, the, for the, our, our first segment. Um, I, I just want to r- remind everybody, beyond Bitcoin, decentralized finance and the end of banks, uh, I, I must say, um, I found it really interesting. I mean, I think, the, the, I mean, listening to you both talking now, the passion is there. But, but what's key, and, and if people are intimidated, um, you know, just listening to all the words that are being thrown around here, the book has none of that. The book explains it simply, basically, calmly, uh, and, and in a way that even uh, you know someone who's not familiar with the financial system will will gain education and will gain knowledge. And for me, that's a real achievement to, uh, in, in a book in this day and age. Thank so, you. So, so well done. I mean, I, I've written a few in my life, and they're, they're hard to do, and especially hard to make simple in a good way, and that's what you've done. So congrats, and, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Warren. Thank you for listening to Honest Money. If you have any questions, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Warren Ingram. Don't forget to subscribe. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Chat soon.